Forty-five years ago, one of the most horrifying transportation accidents in Chicago happened downtown at the height of rush hour. Today we're talking about the CTA derailment of 1977. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Chicago was not the first city to build an elevated railroad. That was New York City in 1868. It took Chicago nearly 24 years after that to finally build its own in 1892. It wasn't that we didn't have public rail transportation before then. It is just that it used to be a bit complicated. In the 1870s, several private companies laid tracks downtown for streetcars pulled by horses. In the 1880s, the horse-drawn system was replaced by cable cars. With the surge in population in this rapidly expanding city, things were a little chaotic at ground level. Traffic was congested and not efficient. Why not build above the streets in the loop like those New York guys? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Chicago took its first steps toward the L system we now know on June 6, 1892, when the Chicago and Southside Rapid Transit Railroad departed 39th Street at 7 a.m. According to the article in the following day's Chicago Tribune, the four cars contained 27 men and three women, Fourteen minutes later, the train arrived at Congress Street, and with two minutes to change engines, it started on its return trip at 7.16 a.m. The return to 39th Street, which also took just 14 minutes, was about half the time required by the State Street cable line. While many were thrilled by this new development in transportation, there were a few detractors. One teacher at Haven Public School at Wabash and 15th Street said, quote, The noise and confusion in our schoolrooms are simply dreadful and distracting in the extreme. For a long time, we have had the clanging bells and the steady rumble of the cable cars in front of the building on both sides of us in the rear, facing State Street, an extensive junk shop where the principal business seems to be the purchase and crashing deposit of old iron. No boiler factory has yet been established in the neighborhood, but now we have the elevated road which adds its share of noise to the distraction of teachers and scholars alike. End quote. For those of you unfamiliar with downtown Chicago, the loop refers not only to the central business district, but also, according to Bruce G. Moffat, author of the book The L, The Development of Chicago's Rapid Transit System, 1888-1932, the loop, the elevated rail lines, create around a few key blocks. Chicago's three early elevated railway lines, the Southside Elevated Railroad, the Lake Street Elevated Railroad, and the Metropolitan West Side Elevated Railroad, were unable to enter the Central Business District, instead dropping passengers off at remote hubs. There was a state law in place then requiring approval by all neighboring property owners for any tracks built over public streets. 
something not easily obtained downtown. Enter Charles Tyson Yerkes, who conceived of the linking of these separate railroads. Yerkes was a Pennsylvania-born financier who was charismatic enough to convince loop shop owners that an L system above the streets was a good idea. Once Yerkes got the signatures he needed, construction in Chicago's central business district soon began. The Union Loop, as it was initially known, opened in segments starting in 1895 with the Lake Street Elevated Railroad making its first full circuit around the Loop in October of 1897. And just like that, workers, shoppers, and travelers could now arrive in the Central Business District and switch to another line's train without having to walk anywhere. There were also direct entrances to some loop buildings, most notably the Carson Perry Scott Department Store, so shoppers could more easily access their destination. Oh, I should mention, Chicago's L system, short for elevated and not electric, as I've heard some people claim, now runs on elevated lines, underground, and even at street level, depending on the line and where you are in the city. Of course, as with any type of transportation, accidents are bound to occur, and they did throughout the first 70-plus years of the L system. But no accident was as significant and shocking as the one that occurred in February of 1977. February 4th, 1977 was a Friday, and the Loop was busy with locals finishing their workday or downtown shopping, eager to start their weekends. Earlier in the day, switching problems caused Evanston Express trains, now referred to as the Purple Line, to operate counterclockwise around the outer Loop track instead of clockwise on the inner track as they normally would. Although the issue had been corrected around 5.10 p.m., a few Evanston trains had already begun their trip around the loop on the outer track. Those extra trains on the outer track caused some minor delays. At approximately 5.25 p.m., an Evanston Express L train was stopped at the State and Lake Station on the outer track. A Ravenswood train, now called the Brown Line, had stopped on the track behind the Evanston Express, waiting for the Evanston to finish loading and unloading passengers. Not far away was an Oak Park-bound Lake Dan Ryan train loading and unloading passengers at the Randolph-Wabash station, two blocks away, just around the bend from State and Lake. By February of 1977, it was estimated that the curved section of the track approaching the State and Lake Station in the northeast corner of the Loop had been in use for 80 years, during which time trains passed over it an estimated 24 million times for a total of 104 million trains carrying roughly 2.7 billion riders. With all that use over the years, there had never been a problem until February 4th, 1977. Stephen Martin, the motorman of the westbound eight-car Lake Dan Ryan L train, with each of the eight cars carrying 50 to 75 riders, closed the doors to the cars and pulled his train out of the Randolph-Wabash station. 
As Martin continued toward the State and Lake Station, the Ravenswood train remained stopped on the tracks ahead, just around the bend. Martin would later tell investigators that the safety signaling device did not alert him to a train parked ahead and that he could proceed slowly. Martin said by the time he saw the Ravenswood car parked around the bend, he applied the brakes, but they did not work. At 5.27 p.m., Friday, February 4, 1977, Martin's train collided with the one in front of him. Upon impact, the first car of the Lake Dan Ryan train began rocking slowly from side to side, then moved slightly back, and then toppled off the track. Several witnesses reported seeing a high-intensity electrical arc flash and hearing a loud noise at that time. The next three cars reportedly stopped and then turned over slowly and fell from the elevated tracks, two hitting the slush-covered street 20 feet below at Lake and Wabash. Two attached cars remained dangling from the tracks. It was horrible, just horrible, passenger Erica Williams later told the Associated Press. We were making a turn. The next thing I knew, I was falling forward. I heard a terrible noise, and that was it. 35-year-old Barbara Coates, a passenger in the first car, told reporters, quote, It wasn't a big impact, but it was like we hit something and couldn't go farther. After the front wheel went off, I was just praying we wouldn't fall off but we did. Mrs. Coates said she was reading a newspaper, quote, when our car seemed to hit something, there was a pause and then it just tumbled. I was falling free and hit my lower back and elbow. I ended up in the middle of the floor, not far from the door. There was a lot of panic. People were screaming. Robert Smith, 25, told reporters, quote, the train was heading west and it started to hang over the tracks. When it started to tip, I held onto the rail and then it crashed onto the street. I helped a lady out and got myself through some broken glass. I think my partner is dead. Those on the street below were shocked to see the L cars falling from above. Rennell Connor, a 25-year-old parking attendant at a nearby garage, said, quote, I saw a couple of people who were underneath the car trying to run, but they didn't make it. One witness, Deborah Winfield, 22, was on her way to catch the train at about 5.30 p.m. when she saw it fall. Quote, All of a sudden it came down real hard like an explosion, she said. I closed my eyes and hollered. Winfield said she heard screams from inside the cars as they came to rest on the pavement. Of those injured, some had been thrown from the train to the pavement as it fell, some remained trapped, and some were pedestrians, unaware of the danger coming from above. Bystanders did what they could to help, and ambulances, police, and the fire department arrived quickly. Police and fire units reportedly worked for two hours to free those trapped within, cutting holes in the tops of the cars to extricate those inside. 46-year-old Dolores Gunderson had been holding onto the legs of a seat when a policeman appeared at the top end of the car. Quote, It was like hanging out of the side of a mountain. I was getting awfully tired. I was sort of numb, and I wanted to slide down. Although the officer wanted to take Gunderson up through the top, she was too scared. The policeman ended up helping her navigate to the other end of the car. 
Nine local hospitals received the victims of the crash. Bernard Feldman, Director of Emergency Services at Wesley Pavilion of Northwestern Hospital, estimated that a third of those being treated suffered serious injuries. Quote, It's a terrible tragedy, then Mayor Blandick said. All city departments, police, fire, streets and sanitation, public health, everybody is here. Fire Commissioner Robert Quinn called the crash, quote, one of the worst wrecks I've seen. There were those nearby waiting for the train who were unaware of the accident. The crowd on the platform at the State and Lake Station, one block west of the derailment, grew impatient waiting for the train, but were unable to leave the station as, because Chicago, one upset customer blocked the exit turnstile, demanding the attendant refund his 50-cent fare. Quote, it's a universal rule, no service, no money, he yelled at the attendant through the window. The man was reportedly unaware of the carnage just a block away. As commuters at that stop began to realize what happened, there was a frantic rush to find payphones to call loved ones to update them. The only phones not in use were those that were out of order. Eleven people died in the accident and 183 people were injured. Among those killed in the derailment were a couple in their 20s headed home to Oak Park. The identification of the final victim didn't occur until the following Monday when it was determined that the woman, described as about 55, was an 82-year-old named Helen Best. Best was an employee at the Grand Trunk Western Railroad at 105 West Adams Street and had boarded the L on her way home to suburban Oak Park. Best, who had worked for the company for 63 years, was always punctual. When she failed to show up at work, her boss and some fellow employees went to the morgue to identify her body. The L car wreckage was loaded onto flatbed trucks and taken to the CTA yards on Oakton Street in Skokie, approximately 15 miles north of the scene of the accident, where it was evaluated. Damage to the cars was estimated to be slightly more than $1.1 million, about $5.3 million in today's money. Despite the loss of life and wreckage, everything was cleared and the trains running on time by 6.30 the next morning. The incident on February 4, 1977 was the second L crash in just 13 months. In January of 1976, also during rush hour, a train crashed into the rear of another at the Addison Street station of the Jefferson Park Line, now called the Blue Line. Two passengers were killed and 310 people were hurt in that accident. By the following Tuesday, equipment failure was cleared as the cause of the crash. Hubert H. Jewell, chief of the Safety Board's investigation, said tests of the automatic controls and brakes showed no defects. The signals in the area were also checked and found to be working. Stephen Martin, the operator of the Lake Dan Ryan train, who was also injured in the crash, was thoroughly scrutinized, especially after four 
marijuana cigarettes were discovered in a bag belonging to Martin. Martin voluntarily submitted blood and urine samples, which came back negative for alcohol, barbiturates, and amphetamines. Martin had a poor safety record in the past, including reading while operating a train, talking with passengers, overshooting stopping points at stations, and failing to stand up to get better visibility on curves. Martin was eventually ruled responsible for the crash by the National Transportation Safety Board, the Tribune reported. Martin, 34 at the time and a CTA driver since 1969, quote, failed to heed a red signal, end quote, and was driving the train, quote, at too high a speed when it crashed, the safety board said. A dynamics analysis by the NTSB indicated that as the standing Ravenswood train was moved forward 25 feet in the collision, the Lake Dan Ryan was moving 9.5 miles an hour into the curve. The NTSB also determined that power was being applied at the time of impact, indicating that the motorman, Stephen Martin, was either confused and applied power instead of the brakes, or he may have struck the controls with his body when the trains collided. After the 1977 accident, the Chicago Transit Authority went on to adopt very specific safety measures, including installing steel girders as barriers on the four sharpest curves of the rail system. Train operators that had been cited for moving violations were retrained, and operators were now required to get permission from the control center before proceeding past a red signal. The CTA overhauled its system in February of 1993, launching a color-coded route system. During this overhaul, the Lake Dan Ryan route was split. The Lake Street branch running west of the loop became part of the Green Line, and the Dan Ryan branch running south of the loop became part of the Red Line. In 2019, pre-COVID, there were nearly 600,000 L riders on an average weekday, with 74,360 accessing the L using loop entrances, and nearly 220 million riders that year. There have been elevated train accidents in Chicago since that cold February morning in 1977, but fortunately, none is deadly. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the CTA derailment of 1977. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. I have a brief list of links to books as well as other related items in the show's notes as well as on the Chicago History Podcast website at chicagohistorypod.com if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. If you haven't already, please follow the show on social media as I update Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram throughout the week with articles, pictures, and behind-the-scenes tidbits to enhance the episodes. 
As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The amazing original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Gracias, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.